and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 7, Island Bird. So, it's the middle of winter here in Australia, and I understand the allure of a tropical island getaway. What with travel not exactly being what it used to, maybe now is the best time to take a journey in the mind to the exotic, warm and balmy locations where many birds have landed over the eons. Although I suppose not all islands are tropical, in fact a lot of them are windswept arctic wastelands. You know what, scratch that intro. Islands! They're places where birds live. Islands are often hard habitats for animals to get to, what with how they're surrounded by deadly, deadly ocean. But birds, aided with the power of flight, have been able to get to these far-flung locations for millennia. And once there, they found habitats that are completely unique to these tiny spits of land, with conditions sometimes literally found nowhere else on Earth. Now, when you take an animal, pop it in a unique location, and add a pinch of time, say, 20 million years, then our old friend Evolution has a habit of spitting out some rather curious critters. Which is why, despite the fact that islands only cover a minute fraction of Earth's surface, they still manage to host a disproportionately high amount of biodiversity. This is certainly true for birds. A little under 20% of all bird species are endemic to islands. Endemic meaning it's the only place where they are found. And today, we're going to meet some of these birds and have a little fireside chat about the evolutionary forces that make islands such a hotbed of biodiversity. So why don't you pull up a chair, fluff a pillow, yep, pour some wine, and join me as we do some island hopping. Although, if you're driving while listening, maybe hold off on the wine. And the pillow. And the fire! To get an idea of why islands are brimming with avian diversity, we can start our story, oh, I don't know, on the coast of Ecuador a couple of million years ago. Pretend for a moment that you're a little old finch. Ah, Dang it, 10 seconds in and I'm already lying. You're not actually a finch, you're a tanager, a superficially similar looking bird, but totally unrelated genetically. Everyone in the future is going to call you a finch though, so I hope you're okay with that. You're a little finch, tanager, bouncing around the Ecuadorian coast, having a grand old time. Until, one day, a nasty storm sweeps in and blows you and a bunch of your buddies way out to sea. Now I'm going to love with you. This is bad news. You're a tiny bird. You weren't made for the open ocean. You are gonna die. But you accept your fate. You've made peace with whoever your bird deities are. Told your comrades it was a pleasure serving with them and you are ready to go down with the ship. But then, on the horizon, you see salvation, a distant chain of islands. Somehow, the wind holds and your tiny bird wings get you there and you're now officially a castaway on the Galapagos Islands. And, you know, it sucks that you can never get back home, but life here is pretty good. There aren't many other birds, there's no competition, the climate is great, there's plenty of food, so you settle in and make it your new home. And that's how Darwin's finches... Tanagers started out. Now, you may know the rest of the story, 
In the 1830s, our old friend Charlie D visited these islands and found these birds, and in time, they would come to inform his theory of evolution. But how did one little group of birds do that? Well, by the time Darwin caught up with our finches, they were no longer one species. There were 18 tanagas, all descended from that common ancestor marooned there all those years ago. That little flock had undergone a process known as adaptive radiation or speciation. A couple of technical words there. Speciation, the process by which one species will diverge into isolated populations that eventually become their own unique sister species over time. Speciation. And adaptive radiation isn't adapting to live in a radioactive environment. No, it basically means that we see a range of different adaptations evolving that better suit that species to its chosen lifestyle. Don't worry, I'll go into more detail. Now, we're going to dig into what exactly a species is in a future episode. Spoiler alert, there's no definition. But for now, let's do a quick recap on how one species might turn into 18. So in this case, there are two things going on. First, there are some 20 islands in the Galapagos archipelago, and not every bird is found on every island. Being geographically isolated has meant that over time, genetic differences developed between the birds and they became different species. Second, where birds did cohabitate on the same island, they found themselves in competition with each other for the same resources. But finches are versatile little birds. Tanagas. They're quite happy eating nuts, fruits, seeds, or insects. Maybe it happened that one bird was better at getting seeds than another. Maybe a different one was better at cracking hard shells, and maybe a third had a knack for catching bugs. Over time, birds that were better adapted at catching their prey of choice changed to become even better at catching it. The start of specialization. Some developed heavy, solid beaks, perfect for cracking hard shells, and so they monopolized that resource. Others developed long, slender beaks that were better for probing into crevices after tasty grubs, so that became their go-to meal. These different beaks, designed to do different jobs, is an example of adaptations arising in different, albeit closely related species. In other words, adaptive radiation. Hey, we're learning! Gradually, these changes built up until they were unique species that no longer interbred with each other. Some would go on to develop unique behaviours, like the woodpecker finch, which uses tools, or the vampire ground finch, which drinks the blood of other birds. After making these observations, Darwin came to- Whoa! Up there! Were you just going to mention a vampiric bird and gloss on past it? What's up with that sucker? Well, as it turns out, on Wolf Island where these birds live, the climate- No, but seriously, we don't have time for that. You know, the vampires, trust me, they're, they're really cool, but- I'll talk about them in more detail some other time. After making these observations, Darwin came to theorise that animals will compete over resources, and only the fittest and best able to secure those resources will survive to breed and pass down their genes. In other words, nature selects animals for survival based on how fit they are. And bada bing bada boom, we have natural selection via survival of the fittest. And indeed, this is the mechanism that allows for evolution. And that's why we ended up with different finches able to monopolize one specific resource, tanagas. In other words, 
Specialist Seed Eaters, Specialist Insect Eaters, and Specialist Blood Suckers. This of course happens everywhere, but on islands you have closed off ecosystems where animals can evolve in isolation under unique conditions. What does that mean? It means you get to see evolution on steroids. As a result, each island tends to have its own very specific set of creatures that inhabit it that are specialised to live only on it. But for birds, when they end up on islands, other kooky things can happen as well. For example, on the Galapagos Islands, there's another strange bird, the flightless cormorant. It's a cormorant, a seagoing bird that spends its time scooting about under the water looking for fish. But as the name suggests, it can't fly. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but for birds, flight is kind of their number one thing. They spent millions of years developing wings and feathers and shedding weight, all so they could get into the air and avoid whatever it was that wanted to kill them on the ground. So it seems bizarre that a cormorant would ditch flight. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, they're not the only bird that has done it. So let's leave the Galapagos and head over to New Zealand, another island chain resplendent in flightless birds. There are about 60 or so currently living birds that are flightless, and New Zealand's got 16 of them. Penguins and ratites, those are ostriches and emus and the likes, they've got their own thing going on, so we'll ignore them just for now. But on New Zealand, you've got other things like the kakapo, a giant flightless parrot, and they're pretty crazy. It's the world's heaviest parrot, so yeah, maybe not a surprise they can't fly. They're the world's only flightless parrot, and it is one of only two nocturnal parrots. They're a beautiful, mottled, moss-green colour, which is all part of their camouflage strategy of looking like a boulder covered in moss. The kakapo also has an unusual breeding schedule. They only mate once every two to seven years to line up raising their young when the local trees have a bonanza of berries going on. At certain intervals, the trees have boom years where they put out a lot of fruit. They're called masting events, and the kakapos only breed then. When these years of plenty come along, males gather together, clear out the forest floor, and make a ditch where they sit all night long making a booming noise to attract the ladies. And I would roll the audio here, but their calls are incredibly low frequency, and I haven't been able to find any that sound any good. Another curious flightless bird is the Takahi, They're a member of the rail family. Now, rails do differ from the thing trains run along. They're a family of swamp and marshland birds. They're stocky, rotund, and tend to have elongated toes, all the better for padding about in soft mud. The Takahi is the largest rail in the world, so maybe not a surprise they can't fly. They have silky blue and green plumage with bright red beaks and stand about 30 centimetres tall. Think blue and green soccer ball shaped bird with red beak. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that. Unlike other rails, they live in the alpine grasslands and eat the tender shoots of the grass. They're an exceptionally rare bird and funnily enough were discovered in the fossil record before anyone ever saw a living one. 
They were then presumed to be extinct for many years until they were rediscovered, and now New Zealand goes to a lot of effort to keep these plump swamp chickens that live in the mountains alive. And the collection of flightlessness doesn't stop there. If we kept touring New Zealand, we would find kiwis, some flightless teals, that's a sort of duck, and another flightless rail. And then, if we really went wandering in the Pacific, we'd find some more flightless rails. They're not strong flies to start off with, so they become flightless pretty easily. Then there's the dodo of Mauritius, the kagu of New Caledonia, not to mention Lyle's wren, another cute little extinct flightless bird from New Zealand. The list goes on and on. One of my favourite island-dwelling flightless birds is the inaccessible island rail. It's just got a great name. So what's the deal? What's happening on these islands? Is there something in the water that saps birds of their power of flight? Well, as abundant as New Zealand's avian life is, and it is very, it is decidedly lacking in another group of animals. Mammals. In fact, if you exclude marine mammals like whales, dolphins, and seals, and I do, then there are only three terrestrial mammals native to New Zealand, and they're all bats, and they're basically bird wannabes anyway. Now here's the thing about flying. It's not easy. To get off the ground, it takes a lot of energy. Every time you want to go flapping in the sky, that's food you need to find, time you need to spend finding it. But if you don't go flapping in the sky, that's energy and resources and time that could be directed into other activities, like, uh, I don't know, raising your young or getting into the New York art scene. What happened on New Zealand and many other islands is that the birds found themselves in a situation where they didn't need to fly. No mammals means no predators. Food was in abundance and just lying about on the ground. They didn't have to fly, and so they stopped. And that's why we tend to get flightless birds on islands, but only very rarely on the mainland. Now, I kind of skipped over kiwis before, but I want to circle back to them now. Kiwis are great little creatures. There's actually five unique species crawling about New Zealand, but they're all brown, furry little critters that sort of look like a two-legged rat with a big, long beak. Although, arguably, the kiwi has the shortest beak of any bird. You see, a bird's beak is measured from where its nostrils are, usually at the base of the beak, all the way to the beak's tip. But a kiwi's nostrils are actually right on the end of the tip. So, technically, it has a long nose, not a long beak. They're kind of like the Pinocchio of the bird world. And they're the only bird that has this feature. And they have it for a special reason. You see, they use their keen sense of smell while foraging in the undergrowth. They probe their beak into places and have a sniff around in close quarters for anything tasty that might be nearby. Their beaks are also incredibly sensitive to fine vibrations. Again, it's another sensory tool they use to assist in their foraging for insects and whatnot. And here again, with a lack of mammals on the island, we find another reason that can bring birds to the ground. You recall I mentioned that animals compete over resources. Normally, there is a whole array of ground-dwelling rodents and vermin that scurry about in the undergrowth finding food there. That isn't the case on New Zealand. There's nothing down there filling that niche. Niche? And you know what they say? Vacuums suck at nature. I mean, nature abhors a vacuum. And so, 
when these gaps appear, there will always be some other obliging animal to come along and fill it. In this case, the kiwi is filling the role of rodents. It's the same reason why you got a radical specialization of finches happening on the Galapagos, as each finch evolved to fill one of those gaps. Tanagus. In fact, our old tool-using friend, the woodpecker finch, who we met in episode 4, is so named because they use their tools to pry under bark. Basically, they're filling the gap that on the South American mainland is usually taken by woodpeckers. There's another cute example of this in French Polynesia. The Tuamatu sandpiper has gone down a peculiar evolutionary path. Unlike its close relatives, it has given up being a shore feeder and has instead become a specialised nectar-feeding bird, essentially filling the gap usually occupied by hummingbirds. Again, islands give rise to oddball birds filling gaps usually crowded out on the mainland. But then, other weird things can happen too. Let's stick with the kiwi. I know, right? It's like everything you wanted to know about how islands make birds weird, you can learn about through the kiwi. They're freaks. Now, it's not obvious just by looking at them, but the kiwi is a member of the ratite family. These are the giant birds. Ostrich, emu, cassowary, the South American rhea, those guys. But the kiwi is positively pint-sized, the midget of the family. Looking at them, you wouldn't even think they were related to a thing like the ostrich. But there is one clue to their long-forgotten jumbo past, and that is in their egg. For you see, the kiwi lays the largest egg as a ratio to body size of any bird. On average, the egg is about 20% the weight of the mother. For most birds, it's usually more like six, so yeah, these eggs are an omelette and a half. Though I suppose technically it's more like three and a half omelettes. Don't ask me how they managed to squeeze something that size out because I've got no idea. The poor female, before she lays the egg, has to walk with her legs splayed apart with the egg taking up so much space that her belly drags on the ground. The kiwi has also been known to sometimes soak its stomach in little pools of water to help soothe the inflamed stretched skin and reduce some of the weight burden. So yeah, kiwis have it pretty rough. The theory is that the kiwi was once a large bird who shrank over time while their egg stayed the same size. If this is true, it would mean the kiwi's ancestor was once about the size of a cassowary. But this shrinkage phenomenon is something that can occur on islands. It's called island dwarfism and is yet another curious evolutionary force that has given rise to some bizarre birds. They include mini emus that used to live on King Island, as well as a type of flightless ibis that used to be native to Hawaii. Now, funnily enough, while island dwarfism is a thing, the opposite is also true. Island gigantism, and as the name suggests, this is a tendency for animals on islands to become massive. For birds, this is the more common route they take. After all, most birds are already small to begin with, so it's easier to go big than get even smaller. The classic example is the elephant bird of Madagascar. Ironically, they're also the kiwi's closest relative. The dodo of Mauritius is another example, because they're just a big old pigeon and flightless to boot. And then again on New Zealand, you have Hast's eagle, which was the biggest raptor that ever lived, with the wingspan of over three metres Thank God they're dead. But the kakapo 
and the takahi are both living examples of birds that have grown abnormally large on their island home. So why does this happen? Well, it's complicated. It's always complicated. Together, these two phenomenon are part of something called island syndrome, which is a tendency for island-dwelling animals to become different to their continental counterparts. What drives an animal to become bigger or smaller has a lot to do with what predators are around and how much food there is and how much competition there is for that food. All things we've already mentioned today. That an animal might grow bigger or smaller is a consequence of the conditions they find, with each case of expansion or contraction being unique to those conditions. So yes, the conditions on islands throw up all sorts of strange birds. Now, before we finish today, there is one last chain of islands that I want to visit. Hawaii. And specifically, a family of birds known as Hawaiian honey creepers. So named because of their, frankly, inappropriate behaviour towards honey. The honey creepers are a broad range of colourful birds that probably deserve an episode of their own. Now, Remember how we started off talking about Darwin's finches as the textbook example of adaptive radiation and how evolution can result in dozens of different species springing from one? You remember, right? You were listening? Yep. I'm not just talking into a void. Oh god. Well, as cool as Darwin's finches are, honeycreepers are even better. And unlike Darwin's finches, honeycreepers are actually finches, even though they're not called finches and they don't look anything like finches. They're kind of like the anti-Darwin finch. There's also a delightfully annoying piece of symmetry, because in South America there's another genus of birds called honeycreepers, which are actually tanagers, the same as Darwin's finches, and so unrelated to the Hawaiian honeycreepers, so watch out for that one. Oh dear god, why is it always so complicated? There are 17 living species of honeycreeper, all related to the rose finch, which is a blush pink finch from the Asian mainland. Just like its Darwinian cousins, it found its way to Hawaii by accident millions of years ago. The honeycreepers come in a variety of shapes and sizes, and boast a range of beautiful colours from scarlet red to canary yellow and jet black, along with the usual whites, greys and browns. They've undergone extreme adaptive radiation with each species specialising in a particular kind of resource. And when I say extreme, I mean ultimate frisbee extreme. Is ultimate frisbee an extreme sport? I don't know, I should probably look into that. Some birds have long, downturned, sickle-shaped bills, sometimes nearly half as long as the bird itself. Some have short and sharp bills, others are heavy set and thick and a few resemble that of a parrot, again varying in length from stubby to slender, sharp, and hooked. Each of these different beaks serves as a tool to get the type of food each creep likes. In the broader sense, there are five distinct groups. There are the nectar feeders. These ones tend to have the sickle-shaped beaks curved to match the type of flowers they like to drink from. These are our hummingbird stand-ins. Then there are the bark pickers. These have parrot-like beaks that are long and slender, which they use to pry up the bark to hunt for hiding insects. As we've previously seen, these ones are filling the niche of woodpeckers. 
Then there are other insect feeders, the gleamers, so-called because they gleam bugs that are out in the open. They tend to have short, sharp beaks, uh, for want of a better word, normal-looking beaks. Then there are the seed-eating birds. They tend to um, look more finch-like. They have thick beaks that are strong and good for cracking seeds. But there are others that have short parrot-like beaks, um, so shaped for the same reason that parrots have hooked beaks, because they're strong and great at cracking stuff open. And then there's a final group known as the generalists. They'll take some nectar, they'll take an insect or two, nab a seed if they can, and funnily enough, they have a generalist or purpose beak, which again, looks rather normal. Now, anyone familiar with honey creepers, and I think I can safely assume that's everyone, may have noticed that I haven't mentioned the fact that about half of all known honey creepers are extinct while the other half are almost all critically endangered. The same is true of the kakapo, the same is true of the takahe, the same is true of the kiwi, many of the Galapagos finches, and a whole range of other island-dwelling birds that I haven't even had time to mention. The fact is that when you have small populations in tiny areas that are specifically evolved to specific conditions, it only takes a small change to potentially wipe them out. And they're all on tiny islands. They've got nowhere to go if things turn to shit. And naturally, us humans are renowned for our ability to leave environments in pristine conditions. Oh wait, no, I, I read that last bit wrong. No, naturally us humans destroy everything we touch. Island birds, pretty much across the board, are threatened with extinction. And next time, we're going to look at a couple of case studies. We're going to see what's going on with our friends, the honey creepers, and then we're going to tell a tale of two islands, Guam and Mauritius. And we'll see what can happen when things go really bad, but then we'll also see how we can always chart a path back to restoration. I hope to see you all then. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? Then I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Okay, I know I teased you before, but here's the deal with the vampire ground finch.